Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. When I was out on the road earlier in the year, I visited Bedacro Distillery in Gearloch on the northwest coast and met Vanessa Quinn, who gave me a tour of the facility. Her partner in life and business, Gordon, wasn't there that day, but we caught up via Zoom a few weeks later when he filled me in on how the business came about and how they're going from strength to strength. They produce a range of spirits, including whiskey, gin and vodka, all of which are proving popular on the international market. You'll hear me chatting to Gordon with some of my visit to this distillery included too. Hi Gordon, how are you? Hi Rosalind, very well, thank you. It's a beautiful sunny day here, so we're uh, we're all happy. For anyone that doesn't know, could you just sort of tell us a bit about the distillery and how it all came to be? Yeah, sure. I don't come from a distilling background. Um, I used to work in advertising and I came to Barrack Row about 30 years ago and long story short, met a German girl who was on holiday and we were married 12 weeks later. And so Barrack Row became a very special place to us. And we went off and lived in the Middle East for a long time, but we were always coming back to Barakro on holiday and loved the idea of living here eventually and, and having a, a business and bringing up our kids here. But uh, it's not the easiest place to make a living. So so that that, that, that was a bit of a dream. But um, yeah, long story short, it came to fruition eventually. Um, we both packed in the rat race and Nessa worked for the German Foreign Office and I worked for one of the, the global um, ad agencies. And then we came back here and 15 years ago, decided to, well, we had just started a family, so we decided to pack in the rat race and move up to Barrack Row, where we had bought a bit of land the year we were married to build a holiday house on, but uh, never quite got around to building it. So we did the typical kind of grand designs thing and bought a static caravan, put it on the land up here, and we'd come up for little holidays here. As I said, we sold everything up in Edinburgh, moved up here and lived in this caravan with a toddler, a baby, a really grumpy cat, and then Vanessa and Ashley came home with a puppy one day, and it was it was mayhem, but it was it was joy as well. And we built the house from scratch on this fantastic site that overlooks the the, the bay of Badakhro and, and part of Gearloch, and started doing B and B to make a living. And we we did that, and we grew that, and we started doing evening meals, but we were always looking for something to do in the winter, which was a very quiet time for us. I'd always been interested in distilling and beer making, etc. And Vanessa had retrained as a horticulturalist and knew quite a lot about the plants and, and was, was fascinated with the, the flora around here um, and suggested maybe we make a, a room diffuser or a scent out of the, the unique plant life. The traditional ways of getting flavours and smells out of plants are to use either sugar or alcohol. And we opted for alcohol because I knew a little bit about distilling. So Vanessa would gather together plants and I would distill them. And we gathered together about 40 jars of individual distillates, weird things like dandelion roots and birch bark and, and some more common plants as well, leaves and flowers, etc. And we'd get the kids off to bed in the evening in the winter. And then we'd smell these things and what smelled nice and what smelled horrible and how they combined. And then we ended up having little sips of them as well. And thought, that's far more fun. 
and uh, said, well, maybe we can make a, a liqueur. Um, one of the plants that grows in abundance around here is bog myrtle, or as we've rebranded it, wild myrtle, because we don't like the word bog in our, our drink. Um, so wild myrtle. And in the south of Italy, there is a liqueur called myrto, which is made from myrtle. So we thought maybe we can make our own highland liqueur based around that sort of idea. So we had a few attempts at that, and it was disgusting. It was really horrible. So we shelved that. But we, we kept on trying, and eventually we put some juniper distillate in one of our experiments one day and thought, oh, that's nice. That tastes a bit like, what does it taste like? It tastes like gin. Gin. Gin is juniper-based, So, which we didn't actually know at the time. So we thought, well, let's make some gin. So we tested lots of recipes, and eventually Vanessa and I couldn't really agree on which one we thought was the best one to go with. So we took them down to our local pub, the Barakrow Inn. And got the locals there, or who are our friends. It's a bit like the community centre of the Barakro Inn. Um, we took them down there and got everybody to try them. Uh, and <laughs> there was no shortage of volunteers for that task. Um, and looking for some consensus, but unfortunately, everybody had a different opinion. So it didn't help in the slightest bit. So we did what one does in life. We ended up going with Vanessa's choice, because um, she is she, she has a great taste and actually trained as a sommelier for a while and, and when she's, she's from Munich um, and trained as a sommelier in her hotel training. Um, so we chose her recipe. We produced a few bottles really to sell to our bed and breakfast guests and to the local pub. That was, that was all we were looking to do. Um, and it ran away from us like a, a snowball down a steep hill um, and all of a sudden was being asked, requested for by hotels around Gerloch and around the rest of the, the, the coastline of the Highlands, which is essentially the NC500. Um, and, and then entered Majestic Wine stores. And, 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 and five years later, here we are with a, a range of gins, vodka, whiskey, selling from Canada to Malta and Germany and Bermuda. And it's completely taken over our lives and we love it. So was it, um, is the timeline, does it all kind of fall into when gin really took off in Scotland? You know how there was a period when no one was that bothered and then all of a sudden it just completely snowballed? But did you kind of hit it at that point? We did, but through sheer coincidence, there was absolutely no design or intelligence or insight involved in it. We were doing what we were doing and it just so happened that gin was becoming very popular and there genuinely was no, no sort of uh, agenda in terms of, of jumping onto a, a developing trend so but it served us very well of course but in the last few years the number of gin producers gin distilleries i make a distinction there because there are gin distilleries who distill gin and then there are people who create brands for gin but they don't distill them they buy them from other people who distill them they just create the brand and, and put them out there so we're very proud to be a an authentic genuine artisan distillery handpicking the botanicals and, and uh, making it all by hand in our tiny distillery, which you have seen yourself when you were, you were up here. Um, so um, lots of other gin distilleries, small distilleries have, have popped up since we started. And so getting into the market, there's been, well, there's been a lot more competition and getting into the market into new customers has become harder and harder and harder and more competitive. That's really why we have ended up growing our range into a few more gins and vodka and whiskey. But uh, no, the timing was just 
fluke. Um, and so you've got you've got your original gin, you've got your coastal gin, and you've got a vodka, dancing puffin vodka. Is that that's quite that's right, sounds yeah, quite cool. Yeah. What's what's with the name of that? The dancing puffin. Um, I'm, I I sail a fair bit, as does Vanessa, and we have a little boat, a little motorboat, and the shants are uh, a little group of islands near Lewis, which is not very far from here, out in, in the in the Minch in the sea. Um, and it's an amazing puffin. There's an amazing puffin colony, and puffin. There are a lot, quite a lot of puffins around. Puffins are really cute. And Vanessa and I both drink gin primarily, but we do drink vodka on occasion. Looking at some sort of research in in stores, I looked at the vodka brands and saw they were all very, very connoisseurial and very serious, and so many times filtered, and so many a very high quality brand image and serious. And let's face it. Vodka is really a drink for people who don't really like alcohol that much to make non-alcoholic drinks alcoholic. Like they add them to fruit juice and cranberry juice and all these things. They're not, they don't want to taste the alcohol. They just want to taste the mixer with alcohol in it. So that's my belief. And I thought vodka really should be more of a, a lifestyle brand, something that's fun, um, because that's why people drink it. They don't drink it for the taste. They drink it for the, the, the enjoyment of socialising, etc. So we wanted to produce a lifestyle rather than a serious brand. And we thought a little puffin, somebody saw, in fact, Vanessa actually saw a picture of uh, a puffin dancing. And we thought that would be really cute um, and developed it from there. So, yeah, it, it's a bit random, but it's very, uh, people relate to it. People like it. It's not nothing too serious. But it's very Highland and very high quality. Um, so, so that's how that brand came about. But on our, on our gins, before we produced the vodka, we had, as you said, we had our Baracro gin and our Coastal gin. And then one of our customers was asking for a cocktail gin. So we produced our 57 degree storm strength um, gin, which is a 57% alcohol gin, Navy strength as it's normally known. But we called it storm strength because it's a very stormy area and that we thought that was appropriate for, for where we're coming from. And it's, it's distilled in a slightly different way. So it's even stronger in flavour than it is in alcohol. Um, so it's, it's great for cocktails and the flavour cuts through the other mixtures that are, are in cocktails. Um, so that, that became very, very popular, quite a, a good niche product. And we'd always steered away from producing fruit gins because most fruit gins are made from gin with a fruit syrup poured into them. And that's why they're sweet and they're a bit lower in alcohol. And neither Vanessa nor I have a very sweet tooth and we didn't really like the idea. It didn't fit our artisan provenance focus for the company. But Vanessa used to grow. Uh, organic soft fruits for the local restaurants and shops around here, um, raspberries, strawberries, black currants, and then salad leaves as well. And we had uh, a whole bunch of raspberry plants left over from that. And they were still, they were dumped, but they were still fruiting. So we picked the fruit and we started to garnish our gin with fresh raspberries. And one day we accidentally left a bunch of raspberries in a glass of gin, went to bed, came down in the morning and it turned bright pink and had a little sniff of it and a little taste of it and thought, oh, a fantastic alternative way to, to flavour a fruit gin. To, not rocket science, but to use the fruit rather than the syrup. Um, so we experimented and did that. So we produce our, our, our raspberry and our orange gins are, are flavoured with real natural fruit, no sugar, no syrup, no colouring, no, no additives at all. It produces a non-sweet, naturally flavoured gin, which seems to have been received very well by the market. Again, a bit non-designed and accidental, but that's how we ended up producing our, our, our fruit gin range, which is only two products just now. 
And what about the whiskey? Was that a similar kind of accidental thing or has it been quite appointed? We want to make a whiskey. I have to admit, I, I've always wanted to, to make whiskey and I would love to add whiskey distillation to our business. Costs and infrastructure and the, the issues of cash flow with whiskey, because you make it and you can't sell it for a long time, are problematic. But we, we developed a relationship with another Highland distillery and talk, spoke, spoke with them for, for ages. And again, long story short, I can't say who the distillery is because we signed an NDA and we're, 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 um, yeah, we're, we're sworn to secrecy. But they now distill a whiskey, a single malt whiskey specifically for us. It's aged in ex-bourbon casks, the traditional whiskey maturation cask, for a good few years. And then we bring it up to Barracro and we put it into our own finishing casks, whether they're ex-Tuscan oak red wine casks or ex-port casks or ex-rum casks, etc. And we finish the, the, the whiskey for six, not 12, 18 months here. And then we whenever we decide it's ready, and then we, we bottle it and label it. So our whiskey started off in a very small, about one cask to start with. And, and now we're buying a heck of a lot more than that um, and producing a lot more than that. Primarily because our exports of whiskey really took off, and it's, it's whiskey that's helped us get into many of the export markets that we're in. Because there's only one country in the world that makes Scotch malt whiskey, obviously. So, and, and that's uh, that's in, in reasonable demand. There's a lot of supply available these days, but uh, our our very small, the nature of our very small scale production uh, keeps it quite collectible and quite desirable to whiskey enthusiasts. So we, we export small quantities to a large number of countries. But again, that evolved from a conversation into 50% of our business now. It's obviously you're very focused on your location and it's that's kind of what sells the, the product. But is there anything that sort of poses a challenge being, I mean, I've been, so like I obviously know how far it is from like the Central Bell and even just coming up the roads and stuff. Is there any challenges? That come no, but it location? is remote. It is, you know, it's an hour and a half away from the nearest decent sized city with all these sort of city facilities at Inverness. Yeah, there are challenges. Um, there definitely are. There's the sheer logistics aspect. So there's the transport, you know, how expensive fuel is these days. So the cost of moving product from here to other places and bringing in supplies, um, ingredients and et cetera, is, is a, a greater expense than it would be if we were based in Central Belt, for example. Recruitment is also a major issue because, because of the success of the NC500, which I personally see as a very positive aspect of, of high, the Highlands now, but there is very little housing available for people who want to come and live and work here. So um, there's almost no long-term rental accommodation available. So we have to try and find staff locally who live locally, uh, who tend to be people who've moved up here to semi-retire or kids who've just left school and don't want to leave yet but to get people in that sort of normal working age range is a serious challenge and what with Brexit and Covid etc the challenge of getting people keeping them and, and paying them the competitive rate and that competitive rate has been increasing quite dramatically of late is a major challenge yeah but I think the benefits outweigh the challenges the benefits of our story of living in such a stunningly beautiful, clean, peaceful environment, having a totally unpolluted atmosphere in terms of where the plants grow and the air and the water, that purity feeds very well. It helps us make a fantastic product, but it feeds very well into the emotional aspect of the brand as well. 
that's the sound of bottles being filled at Bedak Road Distillery. Here's Vanessa, who showed me around on my visit. So here we have our, our three stills. Delilah, our little one, um, she's a 50 litre still. She's who we started off with. And, um, and then we have Scarlett, named after our goddaughter, and Ashlyn, named after our daughter. And they're both 100 litre stills. Scarlett does more of the, um, the coastal gin, uh, anything that's, that's a bit more flavoursome we, we, we use Scarlett for. Ashlyn is, is pretty dedicated to Baracro gin. Um, just because it's the, it's yeah, we're just that's what we started off with, and Delilah, uh, we don't really use that much for uh, daily production now. So she's very much uh, for for doing um, experimental stuff. So we we do quite a few gins now for other places like Inverview Gardens, for example. We're making a, a gin for them. <laughs> and where do you get gin stills like this? Do you get them made for you? They actually. So we originally um, so Gordon trained and then worked in a distillery down in, in Persia and he came back with Delilah. That was the kind of start of it all. And at the time it was really just going to be something to make in the winter, a bit of a tourist souvenir because there's nothing really from the from the Gerloch to take away. Just seafood and seafood doesn't travel very well, you know. <laughs> so um, and uh, yeah so my my original idea was much more scent orientated and then Gordon was um, he was the one who kind of pushed for the for the booze, and gin seemed to be a very good idea at the time. And so what we do is we handpick the local botanicals. So for our Baracru gin, we have wild myrtle, uh, gorse blossom, elderflower, um, some roasted petal. There's a bit of lavender in there, so it's quite a floral, fresh uh, gin. It's quite sweet uh, because that's what the myrtle does to it, and also there's a bit of licorice in there. Then we also do a coastal gin that has two types of seaweed and some wild thyme, which we pick from Open and Beach, which is just the next beach down. And then also uh, some fennel seed. Uh, originally that was from the garden. By now I, I have to buy it in, uh, just because we don't have enough fennel seed. And so the, the coastal gin is a lot more punchy, has the slight anisey taste to it, so it's not for everyone. I absolutely love it. It's really nice with a Mediterranean tonic and a slice of lemon. That's pretty all it needs. The stills are all handmade in Portugal. So when we started off with Delilah and then outgrew her pretty quickly, uh, we just went back to the same workshop where Delilah came from uh, in Portugal and, and so they, they were handmade there. They're not the most efficient, they're more, they, they give a really lovely taste and it's partly because it's got all this area um, for the alcohol. Uh, the copper has uh, influences the, the, the taste, and um, but they do take quite long to heat up depending on the time of year. So at this time of year, um, to get Ashland to, to, to boiling point, which is uh, around about 86 degrees um, with alcohol, uh, takes you know a, a couple of hours really. So to have a, a, a distillation going through will take us between six and eight hours on a day like today, when it's, it's relatively cold. You asked about the NC500 earlier. Um, yeah, some, some people are uh, concerned about the, the effect of the volumes of people and the issues of lacking infrastructure. And they are, they are definitely real issues. But for anywhere to survive and evolve and grow, we need a strong economy, a strong microeconomy. 
from us having grown from employing, well, just Vanessa and I to start with, to now employing eight people, uh, mostly full-time permanent year-round jobs, is is very significant in, in a, a village the size of Adachro, um, and or the area of Gearloch. So we've become a significant employer. Um, and the growth of the brand across the, the country and, in fact, the, the world on a very small scale um, helps bring more people here. So the NC500 delivers a lot of tourist traffic, obviously, and they come to our distillery, they buy stuff, they do a tour, they taste our brands, they take it away as gifts, they spread the word in a very positive manner because our, our, because our products and brand are very positive and, and authentic in terms of what this area is all about. And you no longer do the B&B, that's right. You just, it's taken over so much. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We no longer do B&B. You know, it served us very well for, for many years when we were able to be home and bring up the kids and be seriously involved in their lives. But it's really hard work. It's very demanding and, and you can't get away at all. And so we got a bit fed up doing the laundry every day and bedding. And 99% of the guests who came to see us were absolutely lovely. But you inevitably get a few difficult people when you open your, your home to the public. We don't have to put on that smile anymore when we don't want to. <laughs> Instead, you can just have a gin. Exactly, we can have a gin. And, and the people who come into our little self-catering cottage that we have, Little Aird Hill, it's very small, but it's pretty cute. People seem to really like it and they stay for a good few days. So they're kind of investing in the area and getting to know it and do things rather than just crashing for a night and heading on to the next place. And uh, yeah, we, we seem to get on better with people who are really interested in the area. So it's uh, it's all really positive. Nice. What have you got coming up? Do you have any sort of new releases or is it just sort of continue what you're doing? Like what's what's in the future? Yeah, well, our, our export market is growing quite rapidly. And our biggest contract gin we do is for the Bermudan Duty Free. And we make a couple of gins for them. And they have just taken on some more of our products some gins and vodka and are opening up a few more duty-frees across the Caribbean. So we're really excited about that opportunity. I also alluded earlier on to our whiskey development. So we're, we're finishing our whiskies, peated, some peated and some non-peated, in different casks. And it's really exciting to find out what's going to come out of those casks after the, the, the spirit has finished in it. And you can't really tell until you decide it's ready. So we put our, our whiskey into an ex-rum cask, and then we test it every three months until we feel it's got the right balance of that influence of the, the wood that's had rum soaked in it for a long time in the past, but not overwhelming the taste of the whiskey. So it's all about getting quite a fine balance. Um, that's really exciting, and it will result in more variants of our, our whiskey coming out. We're about to launch uh, a new gin specifically made for the National Trust of Scotland for Inverview Gardens and made from botanicals from Inverview Gardens, which is a really exciting new, new product. And we're testing uh, a couple of different rums, ageing rums, um, because I really like rum, basically, that's the reason. Um, and uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to launch that towards the end of the year. But as with all of these things... Time makes a huge difference to the finishing and maturation of these spirits and they'll be ready when they're ready and you, nothing we can do to speed them up. So one of the last parts of the podcast is desert island drinks. So if you could take three drinks onto a desert island, what would they be and why? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I, would I would take some nice old aged dark rum, something that's a little bit sweet and has some body to it and you can add a little bit of water to but still get the richness and the flavour of the of the, the matured rum in it. I, I would take that with me. Um, I would take some 
red wine. I love red wine, um, good red wine. Not massively expensive stuff, but quite full-bodied, um, well-balanced, uh, not too tanniny red wine. I should say I would take some whiskey, but I'm a bit like a kid in a sweetie shop. I have so much whiskey around me that if I was going to a desert island, I probably wouldn't take any, to be honest. Um, my, my third drink might be a, a good tequila or mezcal, which I, I enjoy sipping. Yeah, I think that's probably what I would take. It's making quite a comeback, tequila, like good quality tequila. People are getting really into it. Yeah, it is. One of my one of my pals has just bought a, a tequila distillery in Mexico. So uh, it's a, a pre-existing um, and not very big, but, but well thought of distillery. So I'd love to get over and learn a bit about that and maybe start importing some and finishing it here ourselves. But we've got so many balls in the air just now that, that that's definitely a wee while down the line. I asked Gordon about how life compared living rurally to his years in big cities. My joy of living rurally, as having having been brought up in Edinburgh and lived in London and in in the Middle East, in Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia, and in Dubai. Um, I, I, I'm really into the arts. I love music and theatre. Um, I worked in the, I was the stage manager of the Playhouse Theatre forty years ago, thirty five years ago. I'm um, so really into the arts. And that's why I really enjoyed urban life, really. But living up in the Highlands, I've, I've learned that the, the value of community, the value of everybody knowing each other, yeah, it has its downside sometimes. But, you know, whenever anybody's in need, there's somebody there to come and help. And they usually volunteer to do so. Um, and knowing your posting, knowing the car breakdown guy, knowing, knowing all these people who affect your life who normally in city life you probably don't know personally I really really like and it's given our kids a different set of values than they would have had growing up in a city I think I think some of them are more positive but you know that, that that's just a, a, a value judgment I love their appreciation of nature and aesthetics and their resilience because they've, they've had to mix with a very small group of people for a long time rather than being able to not like that person, so you go and choose another person. Um, so these are all things that I think are have benefited our lives positively from growing up here. And it is, it is lovely. I was, um, I, as you say, I was there and I was doing a bit of work from the cottage and it's such a nice outlook, so so nice compared to just here I am in my flat. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not at all religious, but I really think living here is good for your soul. Somehow it's, I don't know, it just feels like home. It feels safe and, uh, and warm and inviting. Thanks. Well, um, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, if I uh, can, can recommend the gins as well, because I've had a couple when I was there. So Very welcome. Thank you. Thanks to my guests and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Scran is a laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton. Remember to tune in for another episode coming soon about all things Fish Isla.